And we'll never make a decision where we're just guided by the bottom line as opposed to what is good for the people. You do that, and even when you screw up, and I've made some bad decisions that turned out wrong, you can look at yourself in the mirror and not be ashamed of what you did because you try to do the right thing all the time. And that's got to be our focus institutionally and societally. Hi, I'm Jessica. And I'm Girish. And this is the Destiny Benders podcast, where we explore the impact of international education on the lives of students and professionals from across the globe. It's a podcast for international educators, by international educators, and about international educators. And in each episode, we'll be meeting with Destiny Benders of our industry. We'll look beyond the job title and really get to know the people whose mission it is to change lives and bend destinies. Our guest today is Dr. Barry Craig, president of Huron University in London, Ontario, Canada. Barry, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Gersh, wonderful to be here. A great opportunity to uh, to chat with you once again. And it's really wonderful to meet you, Barry. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure, uh, Jessica. I'm glad we're in three different time zones and three different countries. This is great. <laughs> this is what international education is all about. Barry, I know you and I briefly met and spoke when we did that session a couple months ago. But before we get into the work that you're doing, we'd love to hear a little bit about you and your journey to where you are today. It's one I reflect on uh, because I just talked to one of my colleagues actually a few minutes ago at another university and uh, going through sort of the winter blahs and moving into the third year of COVID wanted a bit of a pep talk. And for me, uh, one of the sources of pep is always a kind of reflection of good fortune along the way. And uh, for me, I pinch myself sometimes because I have this opportunity to do this great job uh, from a sort of unlikely uh, start. I was a, an orphan and I was a adopted uh, from an orphanage from a, a poor family 61 years ago this spring. And uh, mom and dad adopted me. They had no education, particularly dad had grade six. Mom didn't have any more than that. Nobody on either side of the family had gone to high school, let alone graduated from high school, let alone gone to university. That was uh, not on the horizon. We didn't have any money growing up, but tremendous reservoirs of love and support. And uh, my parents, both of them, sacrificed everything, basically, so that I could get an education. My mother used to knit sweaters and sell them at a shop, sort of a boutique town not far from where we grew. And she'd put money away. And every time I came home from college, she would also give me a hug and kiss goodbye and press like a $20 bill into my hand which was, uh, you know, given our resources at the time, was not insignificant. So fast forward a bit, I went off to the UK to do my PhD. It was the first time I was able to travel outside the country. And I was, you know, 38 years old and saw a different world, was a professor, became a dean, a provost, university president, and found myself at this interesting institution here on, which is a, an elite undergraduate institution in Canada, where a lot of uh, Canada's leading families send their kids. And my first move-in day, I realized everybody I talked to was far more affluent than I was among the students, and they had quite a different path. And I saw a great opportunity of something we could do with this institution. So even today, I sit here and say, what are the odds uh, that having come from where I came from, I'd be in this position to try and execute the mission that we're focused on? And so for me, it's never hard to remain optimistic because I just have to look back and say, what are the odds I would be here? 
this is a great opportunity. And, you know, the little bumps I had in the road are really nothing compared to the struggles that my parents went through and countless others. Yeah, that, that is an incredible story, obviously, on the journey that you've been on. Um, I would imagine that that journey inspires you to do all the work that you do. So can you tell a little bit about why and where do you find this commitment to international education that we've seen you show in so many different ways over the years? Two things, and there's two sides, I think, to what we're doing. Um, when I arrived at Huron, there weren't very many international students. It was a very homogeneous student population, uh, mostly uh, from independent schools around the greater Toronto area and uh, mostly white students, uh, mostly affluent students. And there wasn't a lot of diversity on campus. I think probably people just didn't think about it as something that was necessary. Things are rolling along well and why make any changes? And But I thought we could bring so much more richness if students could encounter uh, students from other places and hear their stories. And for me, like I say, when I finally did travel and later in my life than so many people, uh, had a huge impact on me. And so what if we made our campus uh, more diverse? So it was an easy idea to begin bringing in international students. So we had students uh, from Asia, and Africa, and Latin America, who could bring different stories and perspectives. Second part of this, though, was the thing that I realized a year or two into the project. And we saw really rapid growth in internationalization. These are mostly affluent kids that were coming in <laughs> uh, because the international fees at our institution are quite high. As there are many places in Canada, so uh, who can afford a quarter million dollar for an undergraduate education? And so we launched into something that isn't generally done in Canada, uh, which is offering need-based financial aid to international students on a large scale. And uh, we, for example, uh, visited refugee camps in Africa and found students there that had great academic ability. Our entrance standards were the highest in the country. Uh, so they need to be able to hit the fastball. But of course, they can hit the fastball. Why, why wouldn't they? Just because of their circumstances and background doesn't mean they're, they're not capable. Uh, but they just didn't have the means. And so we started generating uh, need-based aid for international students. It, the transformation is amazing. I'll just tell you one illustration. Matson Kitamasi is a refugee from Africa. His uh, family were killed, and uh, he was witness to tremendous trauma as a child because of war. Two years ago, uh, one of our recruiters was in Africa, met Matson. Uh, we didn't have any budget. We already spent our financial aid budget for the year. And uh, Mustafa said, look, this is a fantastic guy. Can we do something? Yeah, yeah, sure. We'll figure it out later, which is always my mantra on these things. If it's a good thing, do it. And, you know, it'll all work out somehow. And so we, uh, so Madsen came up here and uh, he's been an amazing president. So he's a candidate now for president of the student council uh, this year. My wife has him in one of her advanced classes and they're reading Homer's Iliad, among other things. He's hitting it out of the ballpark. I, I encounter all kinds of students, faculty and staff who are frustrated with COVID and upset they have to wear a mask and all of these things. Madsen walks around 24-7 with a smile on his face. A person who's encountered the most appalling circumstances and has driven through this because he wants to be a leader in the world. And so for me, the investment I made in Matson is nothing compared to what he's repaying to the institution. And that's my yeah. experience with internationalization. What these kids bring to us is so much greater than what we're giving to them. Yeah, Absolutely. definitely. You know, I can't tell you how much I appreciate and admire what you're doing and what the institution is doing, because you're absolutely right. As a former international student, I understand the struggles that international students go through, but it can't be easy for you. It's, you know, it's easier said than done, right? We talk about diversity. We talk about making it more affordable for international students. There's got to be a lot of challenges doing that. 
So what are some of the major barriers or challenges that you've had to face to try to get some of these things happening on campus? I'd say three immediate ones. Uh, One is just money. Uh, We don't have Harvard's $42 billion plus endowment because all all Canadian universities are publicly funded and we're not like that. We've essentially evolved a different model over the years and less philanthropic reliance. So as a result, we don't tend to build up the same kinds of endowments. Only a couple of universities in Canada have billion-dollar endowments. The rest of us don't. And so it's to tell the story to alumni and friends so that they can support this. My wife and I kicked in a quarter million of our own money uh, when we started this just as a way of saying, okay, we're, we're in the pool. Can you guys who have much deeper pockets than we have come join us? So there's a limit on the financial side. And so we'll discount tuition. Uh, but it, as you know, and we see from institutions in the United States who have sometimes gotten in trouble by discounting too much, you, you, you got to always keep an eye that you're not doing too much. And the need is, of course, so much greater than you can meet. So that's issue one, money. Uh, second issue is finding and making the contacts with the students. And for us, the key is to work with building relationships at schools, places like Kakuma Refugee Camp, around the world, where I can say, and I'm one of the university presidents that recruit in high schools. I love doing it. I do 40 or 50 domestic schools and 40 or 50 international every year. I build a relationship with a principal and guidance staff. If they phone me and they say, here's a Matson or somebody else, I can trust them and we'll take a chance on it. And it goes two ways because they can trust if they send this precious person to us we're going to take care of that young woman or that young man. So finding them and having the the contact. The third is building the experience on campus so these students are supported. And so for international students, it's different now than it was a quarter century ago. I remember uh, the first international students at my last institution who came from China. They had not traveled outside of China. Much of the West uh, for them was relatively unknown. They tended to stay together as students and be nervous. And we weren't prepared to give them support and care. Uh, now, the international kids who come, you know, they've been exposed to global culture, wherever they're from, they're speaking the same cultural language, more or less. And so you quickly assume there isn't a barrier there anymore. But we know that there is still. And students who have come from a refugee background who experience trauma, sometimes that trauma is hidden and the effects of it are long-term and you don't see it. And they seem to be doing really well. And then an issue Uh, will come out, maybe it's mental health or what have you. You cannot invest too much in that culture of care and that bringing people together into a common community. One key, I think, is to get students involved in themselves. So it's not the administration trying to build these relationships by itself. Students are doing So our Indian Cultural Association, HICA at Huron, Huron Indian Cultural Association, they have a Chinese student uh, on their executive who's never been to Indian in his life. (laughs) (laughs) And the same thing for Chinese New Year. If you go to the Chinese New Year celebration here, most of the students at that celebration are not Chinese. And so the students have picked up the baton to figure out how to get each other together, Mm -hmm. whether it's going skiing or skating, doing Canadian things. So those are the three areas, the money, finding people, building the connections, and third, making sure you have the supports in place. Barry, I would be keen to hear a bit more about your own experience as an international student. So before we started recording, you were telling me that you were a PhD student at the University of Wales here in the UK, and you just mentioned you were 38 years old at the time when you went out out of Canada for the first time. So what what kind of, you said it had a real great impact on you. What kind of an impact, what what things happened to really stand out during that time at Wales? Perspective and just opening your horizons. That was the biggest thing. I grew up in a small town, like I say, didn't have much money. And I can remember my high school friend who's now legal counsel that we work with has done very well. 
we always promised each other we'd never leave our small town. We'd go away if we had to to university, we'd come back and our horizon was the town limits. And uh, that was our vision of where we wanted to be. We imagined it was perfect and it couldn't be any better. And I didn't have any understanding of what more there could be. And so I did my, my BA and my master's degree at the same university in Eastern Canada, not far from where I had lived. And uh, then I became a, a, a minister in the Anglican Church. And I did that for about 15 years and decided ultimately to go do my PhD. And that's when I went abroad. And all of a sudden, uh, you know, in England, we're not talking culturally wildly different from Canada <laughs> in many ways. But for me, it was, holy smokes, there's a much bigger world. And I was surrounded by students other international students who came from all around the world uh, with perspectives I had not encountered and I didn't know. That was the first thing. And second thing, the realities. Uh, as a minister, I didn't make much money, frankly, didn't have much. And uh, I can remember I did a lot of my research at the British Library in London, and I lived in a kind of a crappy boarding house. It cost a fortune to eat and do everything else. And then I would go back to Wales and meet with my advisor and so excited I could get a, a ham sandwich for two pounds and a beer for, <laughs> you know, for a pound and a half, which in, in England wouldn't buy me either of those items put together. The reality of the cost of an international student, I experienced it myself. So the positive side was new horizons. The negative side was that there are barriers and, and I was better placed than some. I'd been working for 15 years and had you know a couple of dollars, but, but not much. And so gave me that experience. But the biggest one for I see now is for our domestic students being surrounded. So we're about 25% international here at Huron. They cannot avoid hearing different perspectives mm -hmm. in a class. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you, you go to your private school and you grow up with kids around the street, you're in an echo chamber of ideas, and now that can't happen anymore. And that's exactly where I wanted us to get to. It happened to me as a student, and now I'm seeing it happen here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But Barry, from your own journey, right? I mean, you talked about doing a PhD, you're a minister, et cetera. What, what was that that made you want to be a president? Or was it something that just happened that you didn't really plan for it? Yeah, it, it just happened, honestly. Uh, there had been a labor disruption at my previous university. This is back in 2008. And I was chair of the philosophy department at that time and thought I'd be a philosophy professor forever. My wife was a political science professor and uh, we had the what we thought was the life of Riley. There was a labor disruption. In fact, the university locked the faculty out. The faculty went on strike. It was the coldest winter in 20 years. And we walked a picket line for five weeks and just about oh, froze man. to death every day. Uh, we had shifts. So we'd stand outside for four hours and it was 25 below with the wind and that sort of thing. And the president of the institution, when this was all over, said, we need to uh, bring about some healing. And he spoke to me and he said, you had tried not to be too radical one side or the other, tried to speak to both sides through this. So why don't you put your name forward as dean of faculty uh, with the idea of bringing people together? It never crossed my mind. And I remember uh, my wife and I had many late night conversations saying, oh, man, this could be great. Well, this could ruin this perfect life we've got as a cross. <laughs> so I, I jumped into it. And then what I realized was the whole idea and purpose of the administration was to create the conditions for success for faculty, staff, and students. So, you know, state as dean, then became provost. And realize that if you're in it to get applause, you're probably picked the wrong line of work. 
because <laughs> <laughs> very few times you can see a parade of faculty down the street. We love the administration. That's not going to happen. Uh, I don't but, think I've ever seen one. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> but if you care about the people, the students, the faculty, the staff, and you're prepared to focus your life on making their situation good to optimize their opportunities, you realize the administration is a place where you can make a huge impact for good or bad. For me, it's always a matter every night to say to myself, did I try and do the right thing today? And and that's why I say to my whole team, we'll make decisions and we'll make right ones and then we'll make mistakes, but we'll never make a decision that we know is ethically wrong. And we'll never make a decision where we're just guided by the bottom line as opposed to what is good for the people. You do that, and even when you screw up, and I've made some bad decisions that turned out wrong, you can look at yourself in the mirror and not be ashamed of what you did because you tried to do the right thing all the time. And that's got to be our focus institutionally and societally. So when we brought in this idea of leaders with hired at Huron, is to get every student here, every student's required to volunteer in the community. And I don't care if it's for two minutes or for 200 hours, as long as it's genuine and sincere, something they care about. And the idea is just say, your life is going to have meaning if you care for other people. And you're going to end up lonely and unhappy if all you think about is yourself. (laughs) And so how can I challenge you to become an empathetic, caring person? Because actually, that's the path to happiness. And so for me, to be able to do that, I could only do it by being an administrator and by bringing in a vision at that level. So that's the plus side. Didn't start out to get into it, didn't have a plan, don't have a career ambition or that stuff. It's just follow those things as they appear. You know, we talk about destiny benders. That's the whole idea of this podcast and talk about how people come into your lives and kind of put you on a path that you may not have thought about for yourself. And so would it be safe to assume that the president of your former institution kind of put you on that path and he kind of bent your destiny a little bit? Absolutely. I try and do that, write people emails and notes that have had that destiny bending role in my life and not forget about them. And every once in a while, I'll write somebody that 25, 30 years along the way and say to them, you know, I'll never forget that you did this and steered me in this way. You know, I think that's the thing. That's what's gratifying about post-secondary education is that we have the opportunity to have this big effect on people's lives and that it's such a a ripple and multiple effect. Uh, One student whose life you alter by giving them an opportunity will grow up, potentially have a family, work at a workplace, and will affect dozens, hundreds, thousands of other people. So if you do it right, you help bend destiny by orders of magnitude beyond yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I I love this idea of uh, that you have introduced it here on of the students having to volunteer. And you said, whether it be for two minutes or 200 hours, as long as it's genuine. I've never heard of anything like that at another institution, although I'm, I'm sure it does happen. How has that been received uh, at the institution? How have students received having to go out and volunteer? Maybe there are some who are, you know, not really wanting to do that. But for me, I think that that's really key because we're talking about bending destinies, those students are bending destinies by the volunteer work that they're now having to do at Huron. Yeah. And I'll be honest, Jessica, uh, when I laid this out for the board almost five years ago now, uh, they kind of freaked out. Huron, before I arrived, they'd been on a bit of a downward uh, slope uh, enrollment-wise, and it was a scramble. How do we fix this? How do we fix this? And in comes this guy and says, oh, now we're going to ask even more of students. We're going to say, not only do you have to do X, Y, and Z, you're going to volunteer. And they go, oh, man, you're in your mind. <laughs> like, we'll be out of business in a year. Over the next 24 months after we rolled this out, applications to Huron doubled domestically. Wow. 
and tripled internationally. What I found was something I guess I had intuited, but had not fully consciously articulated it, that there was an appetite for this generation to make a difference in the world. Mm -hmm. Kids are upset about the environment. They're upset about government. They're upset about a host of social issues. And everybody's on social media complaining about this, that, and the other thing. Here's an opportunity to make a difference. And you're 18. And so we have a whole uh, department and employees at Huron that just find opportunities for students. Here's a menu of volunteer chances, or you can come in and pitch your own. Therapeutic horseback riding to help children who are on the autistic spectrum. Great idea. Whatever it might be. Two things. There's an appetite for that if you give it. But it's not the BS, build my curriculum, CV stuff. Mm You know, my personal Mm -hmm. story where I'm going to inflate all of my great things to impress you (laughs) because I make it really clear. You don't get anything for this. You don't get money. You don't get a gold star in the report card. I'm not even going to pat you on the back. This is all about you learning how to be an empathetic human being. And so that's the first thing. Second, we see some self-selection. And if I go to a school, I will be really upfront with the kids in the class. I'll say, look, honestly, if all you want is get a hold of your parents' trust fund, get your first Ferrari, there's 99 other great universities in Canada, and I'll give you their names. But if you're upset about something, whether it's the environment or or, uh, issues of gender or race or whatever, and you want to get involved, here's a place to come, and I'll help you equip yourself be a person that could be a leader. That's and a so, powerful recruiting message. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So here's here's an idea. I mean, my every time I say this, my uh, marketing and recruiting people lose their uh, minds. But I'm thinking our view book. You know, all of our view books look the same, right? You know that they take off the front cover yeah, yeah. and they all the same shiny, smart kids, beautiful facilities. The grass is always yeah. green. green. All this, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm thinking like next year, one of these years. The front cover will just be stark and the words on it will be, it's not all about you. <laughs> oh, <perfect. laughs> that's, that's awesome. As I say, I, I don't know how we get there because my staff just uh, turns pale when I say it. But for so many years, we've gone down this sort of race of amenities and mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. everything, culture of care, which is really important. But in some ways, you can encourage people in doing that. And you see a kind of entitled atmosphere with some students who say, how come you don't have steel cut oatmeal at breakfast? How come whatever? And so I honestly believe you read this in Aristotle, that the end of human life for all human beings, the purpose is happiness. It's the one thing that we do for its own sake. Aristotle says everything else we do, we do for some other purpose. You Mm -hmm. get money, you buy a car, you have friends, they're all things. But what's the thing that they all lead to is happiness. And then in the ethics, he shows that happiness actually is a life of virtue. Virtue is courage. Courage, generosity, friendship, and those are the things that make us happy. So we spend all this time talking to kids about, here's a job, this will make you money. 98% of the students from our university graduated. What's the percentage that are happy? And why don't we talk about that? That's part of where I think we can help students. And what they'll find in these volunteer activities, hopefully it doesn't just doesn't just make them empathetic. It shows them a path to something that makes them happy. Yeah. Oh, I, I mean, I'm so inspired right now. I have a 14-year-old son and I feel like going out and finding him a volunteer thing that he has to start going and doing because he doesn't. And I don't think he is the person that he could be. You know, uh, so uh, you've just given me a really good idea, Barry. I think I'm going to start that and make him go and do some volunteering somewhere. Well, it takes a while. My uh, my while. oldest is 31. And it's just the last year or two that the pennies dropped for him. That a uh, fixation on himself it just ended up leading unhappiness. And uh, so yeah. 
it's it's not automatic for everybody. No, it's a journey, right? I mean, we all go through it. I think it's it's our. I mean, we're incredibly privileged to be in a industry or a field that we get to influence other younger kids, right? So, Barry, I want to go back to one of the things you said, and you were talking about generosity, and then a while back you mentioned. We're not Harvard with the $42 billion endowment. So let's talk about that. We do have all these institutions with so much money. How else could they be using that money to make a huge difference in people's lives, especially these international students like the the ones you're talking about, going out there, bringing them, giving them the opportunity of a lifetime? Why aren't they doing it? Because, again, we haven't experienced other people's lives or walked in their shoes enough. And so a country like Canada is tremendously wealthy, but we're beside the United States. And so Canada, we have this chip on our shoulder. We all think, well, we're not as prosperous. We're not as rich. We're not as powerful, strong as the United States. But the fact of the matter is you go to a host of other places and we're unbelievably wealthy. And so are our institutions. And so, you know, I've known institutions that have hundreds of millions of dollars of surpluses every year, but they say we can't do financial aid need-based for international because we can't afford it. Come on. (laughs) Uh, It takes so little, right, to change Mm -hmm. lives so easily. And so I think the calculus of the institution is is university president. This is always the thing that's on my mind. My job has got to always be about how can we possibly do the most good for the world with what Mm -hmm. we have for resources, as opposed to a managerial mindset where I'm working on balancing my budget Every year, I'm focused on maximizing my resources and so on and so forth. And one way of saying it is, I think, always make sure that your budget serves the mission, not the mission serving the budget. You start thinking of that mission-oriented way. And I can think of this great university leaders in the United States who have done this. How can I expand what we're doing? I mean, uh, ASU just announced this great initiative. They're going to offer certificates in business online, 40 million people around the world for free in order to get people in the developing world to have credentials and qualifications that can help them have social mobility. So there's an institution Mm -hmm. that's thinking, okay, how can I extend my reach to make a difference? So I think many of us, and look, there are legitimate institutions who are, you know, facing insolvency or something, Mm -hmm. but even for them, I would say, find a mission and your bottom line will get itself sorted out. But the more that you have all your administrators sitting around the table, looking at that red ink and focusing on that, that's a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy in the end. So find a good mission, work at that mission, and then realize that for most of us in the West, we are relatively rich. Another story. So Neil Deng from Kakuma Refugee Camp, this amazing young man that we heard about last May, who had gotten into a prestigious Western institution, then found out there was no financial aid for international students. So he he couldn't go. And so this cry went out by guidance people who knew him. So we gave him a scholarship immediately as soon as we heard about it. So Neil is in his first year at Huron. He traveled back to Kakuma in December, and he's launched an initiative at Kakuma for girls in the camp to be mentored by young women at Western universities. One-to-one mentorship he set up for all these girls. So they're connected with somebody at UCLA or somebody at Oxford or Harvard or Huron or wherever it is. So here's this kid. When I was a first-year university student, I wasn't thinking about anything about maybe whether the next party was or something like that. And he's doing this on nothing, no resources. He's a refugee himself. How many lives are going to be affected by an initiative like that? And at the thousand or more post-secondary institutions or several thousand in North America, my God, how much we could do if we worked together and focused on some of these activities rather than worrying about, oh, you know, my 
my bottom line isn't as robust enough. That's my message is that we actually are very affluent compared to lots of places. And there's a hell of a lot more we could be doing. How do you get other institutions to follow your lead? You got to get boards to buy into it. A lot of presence. You know, we all answer to boards. And if the boards are fixated on the wrong thing, then, you know, they're asking you to fixate in the wrong thing. I think you have a vision. That's my most important piece of advice for leaders. Have a compelling vision for good. And that's what you're into this for. When you're doing the hiring process, be upfront about that vision. I think one of the things I hear a lot, new presidents will say, I'm going to spend my first year listening and then I'll learn where we want to go. I think that's a little bit disingenuous. You do want to listen first year, but we all have an idea and a vision. So just be upfront about that when you come in. I don't believe in this. I do believe in this. And this is what you're getting when you buy this package. And the good part about that is, you know, then if they hire you, they've hired what you're actually planning to do. And they support that and get that support all the way through. Then find ways to articulate and sell it to faculty, staff, and students and explain it. But my experience is if you do have a compelling vision, people will follow. But it's got to be legit too. I mean, that's why we put our own money into it. So I, I can say to people, yeah, I believe in this myself. So I see you have an interest interest in the Corn Brothers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, my wife actually was just uh, interviewed and was in a Wall Street Journal article uh, last week on the new Coen Brothers film Macbeth uh, because we had written this book on the on the Coen Brothers films. <laughs> and it's funny, we're both sort of a, her she's a political philosopher and we write on Aristotle and Plato and uh, things like that. But our last two or three books have been on popular culture and popular literature. But we find in the Coen brothers, uh, people that use, uh, in sometimes comedy, some of their movies, you know, are serious, hidden beneath the surface. And it's great. Joel and Ethan Coen will never admit this. They're actually exploring serious ideas. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, brother, where are they? I don't know if you saw it, you know, yeah, based, yeah, on, Homer, brilliant based movie. on Homer's Odyssey. You know, the Coen said, I've never read Homer. Oh, really? I didn't know that. As if it was accidental, right? <laughs> so, Barry, I, I want to go back to what you said. Said earlier again, like about happiness. The whole purpose in life is to be happy. Our audience, hopefully, is is a diverse group of educators from around the world and in various stages of career. But for some of the early stage career audience members here, what would your advice be based on what you've experienced, the things you've seen and done? How would you or suggest or what would you suggest or how would you recommend that they go through their own career path keeping in mind that the mission in life is to be happy don't uh, view people as commodities and uh, that's really important in the international recruiting business because uh, you see it all over the place uh, whether they're agents mm-hmm. or institutions it's how many bums and seats at what price and uh, where can i get them that's the path to ruin and awfulness and unhappiness so there's a big debate in canada right now Uh, Because Canada has seen a massive growth in international recruiting. We're now third largest destination for international students in the world. And we're only a country of 30 million. So it's remarkable. But a lot of international students have been brought in. And our biggest national paper, Globe Mail, a story a few weeks ago, essentially under false pretenses, Mm -hmm. just so universities or colleges can meet their budgets. And so for our team, it's never that way. So we've got this great guy who's our director of international recruiting, Moose Staffes. I think you might talk to Moose. Uh, really well, Moose, yeah. Moose literally knows every international student who comes to here personally. And for about half of the ones who come here, he's been in their parents' homes and had dinner with them. They will email him parents at two in the morning saying, 
uh, my son or daughter is sick or they're homesick. <laughs> Moose gets in his car and drives over. <laughs> you know, a bunch of the kids from Africa, we had them buy a house for a pool party in, in September. And then another bunch of brought in the week after that. And I made them dinner. We build a, a relationship with the students and the families where it has to be true what you're telling them. You have to follow through. And they're human beings. And I say to international parents, honestly, I will care for your kid as much as I care for my own kid in another institution and make sure that's a solid pledge for you. But if you see them as numbers and budget lines and commodities, you might get rewarded. You might get hired as an international career and get promoted because you delivered on the number. But in, at the end of the day, the story will be a sad one because it will all collapse at a certain point. So not as commodities, people you care about. That builds a long-term basis so that schools we visit and work with, let's say in India or Africa, they know if they come here, that's what's going to happen. It's going to be a positive experience we're going to be taken care of as opposed to, I got them into a Western university. My work here is done. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I have one last question for you. You're the recipient of the Queen's Diamond Jubilee Medal. Tell us a little bit about that, what it means to you. Yeah, I think it must have been, they mixed me up with another Barry Craig. I can't imagine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it meant a lot. My mom was from England. She was a war bride, married my dad, who had been at landed in Normandy and was a Canadian soldier in the Second World War. I grew up in this house where uh, uh, attachment to England was a big thing. Mom still spoke with an English accent and you know, drank tea and all of that stuff. And so for me to have this medal, it's a Queen's Diamond Jubilee. Mom and dad are both gone now. It meant a lot as an attachment, something I always had in the back of my mind that they could see where my life has gone and figure that this kid they picked at that orphanage, it kind of worked out. (laughs) And that's what's always in my mind, that they would be happy. And that means a lot to me that they would have been happy and proud. So that's the biggest meaning for me about it. Yeah. that's fantastic. I'm, I'm sure they're proud as I'm sure a lot of people that you've touched over the years are. Thank you. We're going to switch gears a little bit. We have a quick fire round of questions, just something sure. that comes right off the top of your head, right? Yep. First question, what's your favorite place to visit? Florence, Italy. Yeah, one of my faves too. Beautiful yeah. city. Okay, quick fire question for you. You are a philosopher. Who is your favorite philosopher? <laughs> Well, uh, based on the previous question, it shouldn't come as a surprise. And also, my wife and I wrote a book on him, Dante. Ah, and, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Any specific divine, reason? Yeah. The Divine Comedy is so comprehensive in its exploration of human nature. You know, it begins, Nel mezzo del camon di nostra vita. Midway through this life, I found myself lost in a dark wood. And that's how the Divine Comedy begins. And it's this person who realizes they've lost their moral path and find it again. Who can't relate to that? So, yeah, I've, I've read it a hundred times, literally, the Divine Comedy. The other day I had a big meeting. As part of my prep, I, I put on uh, Good Vibrations by the Beach Boys, and then I sat down and read the first candle of the Divine Comedy. That got me in the right frame of mind. <laughs> That's awesome. Fantastic. What's your favorite cuisine? Right now, I would always have said Italian, but Indian, since I've been visiting India. Good, oh my good choice, Barry. Good choice. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have I have a friend uh, in Delhi who says his butter chicken is so good. He promised me, he said, uh, you will lick your fingers. And I said, well, I can't do that in front of people. My, my wife would shoot me. Sure enough, I did. It was so good. So, yeah. Licking your finger. That's really finger licking good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and one last question. Well, when you were little, what did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted to be an Air Force uh, fighter pilot, to, like fly a Spitfire, like in the Battle of Britain. And then I was crushed when I got glasses in grade three and they told me you can't be a pilot. Uh-huh. And, uh, so, so that was a, the journey. And then I wanted to be a professional baseball player 
And I didn't quite make that either. So then my vision shifted after that. But yeah, that's where I was when I was a kid. Barry, thank you so much. This has been an inspiring and just a fun chat with you. I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. It's a treat treat for me to talk about this stuff all the time. We're all, the three of us, been blessed to be able to work in a thing where we do change people's lives. And uh, it's never hard to talk about this stuff because it's always good stories. Thank you for listening to Destiny Benders. In the next episode, we speak with Karen Fisher, international education journalist and senior writer at the Chronicle of Higher Education.